before I begin, uh, we'll have small groups tonight. Um, but if anybody has any thoughts about the meditation practice, this may be something you bring up in the small groups. Um, but maybe you can take just a couple of minutes. If anybody has any reflections on um, observing the doer and seeing the impermanent, that that sense of there being a doer doing something, if it's seen in a balanced, relaxed way, what happens? What is that experience of seeing the doer? Any reflections for the group? Are the instructions helpful or confusing? Yeah, Sandy. For me, it was really helpful to think in terms of distraction and my distraction, and it made it the, really the easiest it's ever been to like see when something starts and then when it goes, you know, the impermanence of it. And somehow, using those words, I had that experience. And even trying to see the doer felt like a distraction to me, and that feeling when I felt not distracted was like, I don't know, like, like uh, without boundaries. Yeah. Yeah, and that was really the context for the, um, you know, the ob- observation or the seeing of a doer coming and going was the practice of non-distraction. So it wasn't like there was an additional <coughs> practice, but in the context of non-distraction, noticing when there appears to be a doer doing something and noticing when there doesn't appear to be a doer doing something. And just noticing that it is something that comes and goes You know, the mind is conditioned to project the sense of a doer doing something. So, at least for me, it it is something that arises. But we don't have to make that a problem. We can just see it and see that it's just that. It's just that sense of a doer that arises. Anything else? Yeah. I had an experience of being in that non-distracted place. And then all of a sudden I noticed that it's getting cold. So then I started to want to do something about it. Mm-hmm. So it was a sensation of, you know, my body was starting to make me come out of the non-distracted place. Too. Right, and if we see that kind of experience over and over again, we see that that there's always a sense of a doer. Like when the mind gets distracted, distraction is highly correlated with there being a doer doing something. And it's like, so it's the experience of non-doing. Can things happen? Like putting a blanket around us or whatever one does to live one's life. Can that happen? I mean, it's relatively simple being in the meditation, the formal meditation, but even beyond that, you know, can this life take care of itself without that insertion of a doer? And that's just, and we can learn in the relatively simple environment of sitting, where there aren't too many demands, you know, every once in a while maybe having to adjust the posture or something to stay more warm or whatever. Yeah, thanks, Julie. Got Liz, and then. Oh, um, what do you mean? 
I'm thinking this is kind of a state of passivity. Is that incorrect? Yeah, but the question is, like, it doesn't really matter what, what the activity is because I could be the one being passive, so that could be a doer activity. Um, so we have to be on the lookout because the doer wants to do it right. And so it will imagine, the doer will imagine, okay, what's right, and then it will do that, even if it means, like, being passive or whatever. Yeah. Jason, did you have a thought? Yeah. I seem to notice that distraction coming and going, but that it seemed to come more often on, uh, with your voice. And so I was wondering, like, is perception synonymous with distraction? I mean, I can, you know, there can be your voice being known, but then it seems like though to organize that sound and the concepts that I understand requires a new one. Is that true? No, I don't think it's true, but it's definitely a whole nother level of uh, seduction when there's a voice. And then, I mean, it'd be one thing if it was just like the radio in the background, but even that is quite challenging. But then, in this context, you know, it's the teacher saying something, and so the there's just a lot of conditioning around that experience. And it can either be supportive or just the opposite. And it really depends on where, you know, all kinds of, you know, the, the different conditioning that's at play in that moment. Um, so it makes a lot of sense to me that for some of you, in some moments at least, that the instructions themselves would be counterproductive. Uh, I mean, I, I know that experience personally, so I know that that happens uh, more often than teachers would like to admit, probably. But it's like, it's good practice, because it's not about, it wasn't, the practice wasn't about sustaining non-distraction. It was about learning about the how the sense of self can be seen arising and ceasing through taking up this uh, theme of the doer. And so the non-distraction provides the background to better see the sense of a doer, doer arising and ceasing and, uh, and then see the relationship between there being a doer and the mind getting caught in distraction and feeling some kind of <clears throat> resultant uh, constriction or stress. Maybe time for one more comment, if anything else. So we have about a half an hour, and I wanted to go back and talk a little bit more about um, anatta and the Four Noble Truths, this basic theme and re- remember, right at the beginning, the first week, um, I, I was following some of the ideas of Ajahn Tanisaro, and he was saying that the basic framework for the Buddhist teachings is karma, that there is a lawfulness of how things unfold, and this lawfulness is really driven by intention. Intention sets things in motion, at least specific to our experiences of suffering and happiness. And then anatta is a strategy that helps us operate in this world of intention and this world of karma. 
in this lawful unfolding of our lives. It's a very useful strategy to bring in. And we see that the opposite of anatta, that when there's a strong self-view operating in the world of karma, things feel really tight. Because that person, that sense of a permanent self, you know, in a world of karma, wants to control it or feels betrayed by it or it has all kinds of dramatic reactions to living being in a world of karma, of cause and effect, where things matter, where there are consequences. So we want to keep remembering that foundation, like to keep coming back to the lawfulness of karma. And the Four Noble Truths are really coming out of that. It's basically the Four Noble Truths is saying, well, what's the most relevant you know, aspect of karma. Because karma is just saying that things unfold lawfully. Well, of all the things that we could examine that unfold lawfully, what would be the most relevant? Well, how my heart gets tight. How a human heart gets tight. Becomes unhappy. The karma of that. Like, how does that unfold lawfully? And how does the experience of liberation, of freedom, of happiness, of peace... How does that unfold lawfully? So the Four Noble Truths is just the Buddha's way of talking, kind of mapping out the karma of suffering and not suffering. And so when he says there is suffering, you know, there there are three insights. Some of you know there is suffering and it's should be understood, and it has been understood. So first, the mind, the awareness, the practice reveals, oh my God, you know, I'm, the heart's tight. I feel weighed down or burdened. This moment, the way it is for me, is hard to bear. That's that initial insight. That's an insight, just to notice that things are difficult. When that happens for you, to notice that. And then in noticing that, to notice it's relevant. You know, the contraction itself and that it's relevant because it's something that's happening right here. It's relevant because this is a world of karma, of cause and effect, of conditional, a conditional unfolding. So if there is the experience of being burdened in the moment, that means there's something lawfully unfolding and it's relevant to the human here who is experiencing that, it's relevant, like, how is it that it's unfolding? What is there that's supporting this experience of my heart, this life, my body and mind, getting tight, feeling overwhelmed, heavy-hearted? And then the last of the three insights for the first double truth is to understand that dukkha, the experience of the heart being burdened, has been understood. So, understanding that it's relevant, the second insight means that we take it up as a meditation theme, whether we're formally meditating or not, the experience of the heart being burdened is taken up until whatever is happening, this is, this is the theme, 
And in order for something to be a, a theme of mindfulness, that means we're not trying to make it go away. Right? You can't really see something if you're manipulating it. Because the manipulation or the, anything you're doing to control it or make it other than what it is keeps the mind, the heart from knowing it. So this is relevant. This should be understood. And then when the third insight, this has been understood, it means that the mind isn't trying to control the dukkha at all, but it's just willing to understand it. To let it in, to, to be exposed, to be undefended. This is from uh, another article by Tanisaro Bhikkhu, The Integrity of Emptiness, it's called. Forget if I put this up on our, as one of our um, articles. But anyway, at the very beginning of this, he says, For all the subtlety of his teachings, the Buddha had a simple test for measuring wisdom. You're wise, he said, to the extent that you can get yourself to do things you don't like doing, but know will result in happiness, and to refrain from things you like doing, but no will result in pain and harm. Now that's such a simple statement. And it makes so much sense on all levels of our reality. You know, like, you may not like to take off the garbage, <laughs> but, you know, there's something about taking care of these ordinary things. And what does our mind like to do? Our mind likes to get distracted. Because in the world of distraction, in the world of thinking, you know, there's... There's really endless possibilities of <clears throat> where that thinking mind can go, what it can imagine. It's not bounded, but when I drop into the present moment, it seems so limiting. You probably have this experience like at the beginning of a sit, to come into the body or to come back to the breath. It's just like, just seems so limited compared to all the other things I could think about, my to-do list, becoming somebody that I want to become, wondering if I ever become something I don't want to become. So to be reduced, in a sense, to the present moment, it feels um, limiting. It's like one of these great paradoxes. And I think this is really true with this first noble truth. And you can, you can talk about this in your <clears throat> in your small groups, about this willingness, you know, it's like, this is why we don't want to think that not-self is true and self is not true, but to really see it as a skillful means, because initially it might take a very, you know, distinct sense of self, like I'm the one who's going to sit here and take a good look at what I'm feeling, even though it's you know, I could turn the TV on or I could avoid creating this space in my life to just be present, but I'm going to do it because I think it's relevant. <clears throat> that's, you know, that's a very distinct, clear self coming from a self-view. But it's interesting, like even in this little <clears throat> uh, sentence, two couple sentences from Ajantani Saro, you see how we're creating one sense of self who's willing to face how it is right now, but 
causing another sense of self that wants to, you know, fantasize about this or that has to die. So this is sort of an interesting thing where, you know, the initial um, way we begin to loosen the screws around self-view is to see that there are different selves we could be in any moment. We could be the self who's willing to just be present with the limitations of being with the body, being with the breath in the body, being with the experience of non-distraction. Or we could be the self, you know, who thinks it's more relevant to worry about this or plan that or do whatever, take all the different adventures. I mean, just like at night, every single dream is a different self. It's not the same self. And, you know, one of the things you'll see more, I'm sure you've seen it already, but as soon as there's more and more space in the mind, <clears throat> we see the different selves that could manifest in the moment. You know, I see that all the time, like in, in relationship to other people. I could be the defensive one. I could be the gregarious one. I could be the reserved one, controlling one. And it's like they're all just there, ready to be taken a hold of, in a sense, and played out. And even that, being the one who's aware of that, is just another self at play in the moment. Like, whatever sense of self is there with the one who's practicing, that also. But see, that's a beginning, to, just to start to notice that level of selfing is quite useful. So we're seeing that uh, there are many possibilities, and then it really helps us see that that these different selves are born and die. And then another self is born and dies, and another self is born and dies. So we <clears throat> recognize stress, we recognize its relevance, we sit open to it, practice being undefended in order to see it clearly, which then allows in that moment then opens up this whole second place. It's like now we're, we can actually uh, more directly understand the world of karma, having, in a sense, as a practitioner, stood our ground. So taking the role of the one who knows, right? Even if it's a self-view, there is dukkha, it's relevant. I'm just going to be with this. I'm just going to open to this. Then we see the cause. There is a cause. That the act, the uh, experience of being tight is an activity. It's a process right here, right now. And this is where we can see very clearly whether you want to call it craving or grasping or selfing. But we're seeing the birth and death and the, re the sort of repetitive formation of you know, what leads to grasping, the activity of grasping. I think in one, and it could have been Ajahn Tanisaro said this, that it's not so much that a self grasps, but the activity of grasping needs a self. In the same way, the activity of hating somebody needs somebody to hate, somebody who's been harmed, who now hates. So the grasping 
is the, the sort of uh, force or momentum of grasping, clinging, struggling, it leads to the formation of mind and body and self and uh, subject and object. It's like uh, it's a process and then the conditioned mind wants to create meaning around that process of struggling in the moment. How can I explain this experience to myself? Well, there's a me who's struggling to get something, or me who's struggling to get rid of something. And see, this is another, this is another little erosion around wrong view of self. Because we see that self is a byproduct that then, of course, has consequences of the mind explaining the experience of suffering to itself. So there is struggling. The mind explains it by, well, I've been harmed, or I will be happier if I had this thing, or whatever self-story, self-drama the mind tells. And then, of course, that story is itself stressful, which then the mind has to explain the pain of that stress. So it tells itself a story about a somebody who wants something, wants to get... So you see, that's the feedback loop that begins... And that's what's revealed in the second noble truth, the practice of the second noble truth. When there's steadiness, when we're not immediately, directly struggling against this experience of pain in life, dukkha in life, then we can contemplate it as an event, as a process. And we see that process of there is the resistance or the grasping or the clinging and the story that arises in conjunction with that, there's a me who doesn't want something, or a me who wants something, or but some story that it is itself stressful. Another moment of dukkha. Another uh, construction of meaning. So, we see that, that the selfing, it's really this unwillingness to let dukkha be dukkha, because that's that breaks the cycle. Letting dukkha be dukkha, not having to create meaning around it. And I'm sure you've seen this. This happens, and you know, just even for people who are pretty new to practice, this will happen many, many times in a sit. You know, we'll 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 be sitting, and some story will arise in the mind. And, uh, you know, we'll start to take on, we'll start to feel the weight of that story as the mind identifies with it, constructs that sense of self. And we can go back and forth between the one, you know, who's suffering and it not being a problem. So that, uh, that letting go all it requires is not being afraid of being the one who's suffering and not needing to... See, the creation of meaning around the experience of dukkha is a defense. It's like, that's how we think we can control it. We'll tell ourselves a story, explain it. It's like religion is a lot of this, isn't it? Where 
human beings together as, as a community usually, you know, they see their lives, they have enough space to sort of contemplate their existence, and they imagine that there be it would be easier if we had a story that explained why why is it this way. But the thing is we tell ourselves stories that come with weight. You know, when we have a story that centers around a self, then there are consequences, there's karma about having that story. That's this you know, the relevance of karma again. We can't just create meaning around some pain in our life without there being a consequence, a natural, inevitable consequence for the story that we told. So initially the Buddha says, well, tell yourself a different story. Tell yourself a non-self story. You know? So that's what we do. Now we're, we're doing, we're practicing the Four Noble Truths. There is dukkha. It's relevant. It has been understood. There is a cause. This cause should be abandoned. It has been abandoned. There is the cessation of suffering. This should be realized. It has been realized. There is a path, a way to live. This should be developed. This way of living should be developed. It has been developed. So these are the 12 insights in the Four Noble Truths. And now what would be good, both in the small groups, but also in the last few weeks of our course, is to really see anatta, like we've been talking about the whole course, as a strategy to better practice the Four Noble Truths. And again, the Four Noble Truths is a contemplation of karma in terms of suffering and the end of suffering. Suffering is a karmic event. It's a natural, lawful unfolding of causes and conditions, which we are contemplating. Because to us as a person... It's relevant. <laughs> That's why we come to a place like Common Ground, or why we study and practice, is because the personal subjective experience of suffering, of stress, is appears to me to be relevant. I care about that. I want to learn something. I want to be more free of that experience of dukkha. And so we have the Four Noble Truths, or basically we're contemplating dukkha, its cause, its cessation, and then the way of living that uh, allows for the cessation. And then the Buddha says, okay, and here, here's the kicker. Try this view as a strategy to reveal more deeply what's going on. Because the ultimate Practice isn't to practice non-self. But using non-self as a strategy, as you're observing dukkha, observing its cause, observing its cessation, and observing the way to live, the way to practice, the ultimate strategy or practice isn't non-self, but non-self will reveal uh, sort of an absence of uh, reacting. So the, it will reveal like the reality of non-grasping, maybe is the best way to say it. But we need a pointing out, because otherwise we keep replicating the basic problem by approaching the Four Noble Truths from a point of view of self, like I described. 
So even if we get to that second noble truth where we face the dukkha and now we're seeing the cause, it won't occur to us how to how to move beyond just seeing that selfing is a problem. Because we'll keep approaching the problem of selfing by selfing around it. I shouldn't be doing this. You know, some fashion of that. We keep replicating the same thing. And it's very frustrating. So people tend to give up and see the merit of distraction. <laughs> you know, I'll just get by in life. And, uh, and that, I, I, I think even now, for me, that seems appealing sometimes. Like, getting by instead of uh, doing this contemplation in a wholehearted way. So we bring in non-self all the way, and non-self reveals the reality of non-grasping. <clears throat> like, what is dukkha when there's no self? Or what's the problem with impermanence when there's no self? Or when there's no the mind isn't imposing, projecting anything on. Or another way to say this, is karma a problem when there's nobody taking it personally or owning it or having a problem with it? But see, that has to be realized. Like From a self-point of view, that can't be conceived of. Having karma, but karma not belonging or referring back to anybody. It has to be realized. So we, the person, me, takes up the strategy of not-self. So I'm doing the Four Noble Truths or contemplating the experience of dukkha and the release of dukkha, which is just ordinary life experience. This is not anything different than just being aware as we're living our lives. But I'm on purpose as a self using the non-self strategy. And I'm just seeing it as nature. You know, just contemplating whatever I'm observing about the experience of stress, its cause, its cessation, seeing all of that, the Four Noble Truths, even the development of a new lifestyle, a lifestyle of mindfulness, even seeing that as a movement of nature. And that process of inserting the non-self strategy or right view, what we might say in Buddhism is right view, on this problem of dukkha, this contemplation of dukkha, then leads to a realization where the mind realizes this possibility or this reality of non-grasping. And then within that, in that world, in that reality of non-grasping, self and not self isn't relevant. It's only relevant from this point of view as a person who experiences stress and has enough space and a freedom in our lives to uh, to imagine and uh, aspire to non-stress, non-dukkha. And we're willing to listen and we're willing to study and we're willing to play with our minds, basically. And uh, we come across the teachings of the Buddha he says, okay, so here's your framework. There is karma. The most relevant aspect of karma is stress, how it comes, how it goes. And uh, and I discovered something, that if you practice, if you take up the strategy of not-self, there's a whole shift, like a paradigm shift, in your reflection on stress. And the mind will realize something, and then that realization 
takes you out of the box that's so hard to get out of because we keep approaching all the problems that come up from being in the box with the cause that got us in the box to begin with. So you never get out of the box, the, the box of creating stress, you know, that little prison. So any way that seems relevant in your own practice of how you've worked, you know, how you've appreciated the experience of karma, the under, your understanding of karma, the relevance of how it is that your own stress comes and how it is that it is released or falls away, and how you've brought the strategy of not-self into that work of looking at um, the experience of suffering. Next week, this is another thing you might talk about in your small groups. Next week, um, we'll talk about the different ways, you know, that the different stories that give a lot of fuel for self-view. So you could talk about just in your own life where it is that naturally there's a very coherent, strong sense of self that's not so easy to see as, as something that comes and goes. So where it's really sticky. So for example, in the guided meditation, you know, some patterns of being the doer are very convincing. Like, I really have to be the doer. It's like, we can't even entertain the possibility that that sense of being the doer is relative. It just doesn't seem that way. And it could be for some of us, being the practitioner, like, that seems essential that somebody's got to be doing the practice. And and for whatever reason, either fear or something keeps the mind from sort of seeing that activity of being the practitioner, being the meditator, as just something that's being known. So where are those places that are hard, that just seem so true or real, that's really me? That's another thing you could bring up in your small groups. And just uh, a little flavor for the last two weeks, I'll read a poem by one of our better Buddhist poets, Jane Hirschfeld. And it's not... Directly, maybe about anatta, but I think in a really powerful way, just conveys this uh, realization that I was talking about, where this uh, reality of non-grasping. She's talking, I think, about somebody who's dying. It's called "It was like this." You were happy. It was like this. You were happy, then you were sad, then happy again, then not. It went on. You were innocent or you were guilty. Actions were taken or not. At times you spoke. At other times you were silent. Mostly, it seems, you were silent. What could you say? Now it's almost over. 
Like a lover, your life bends down and kisses your life. It does this not in forgiveness. Between you, there is nothing to forgive. But with the simple nod of a baker, at the moment he sees the bread is finished with transformation. Eating, too, is now a thing only for others. It doesn't matter what they will make of you or your days. They will be wrong. They will miss the wrong woman, miss the wrong man. All the stories they tell will be tales of their own invention. Your story was this. You were happy, then you were sad, you slept, you awakened. Sometimes you ate roasted chestnuts, sometimes persimmons. Maybe for you too, it, it conveys a little bit of the freedom of, or the reality of non-grasping in its own way.